Geek Top 5, Season 5. I'm so happy you're here. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> this is so exciting. Geek Top 5. I'm Jess. I'm Graham. And we have, I mean, is this count? Is this our Valentine's Day special? Is that a thing that we're doing? Oh, 100%. A hundred percent. Okay. Yeah, I, I sent you some flowers. You didn't. You didn't get the flowers. I oh. definitely did not get the flowers. <sighs> this uh, supply chain issues, I guess. Right. Yeah, I'm sure they're stuck on the Suez Canal. <laughs> Valentine's Day, February fourteenth, was uh, just passed, which definitely has its origins and something meaningful. But today is essentially the the capitalist drive to celebrate love and romance and all that jazz and. Listen, let's get it out of the way. I think folks with the a, uh, geek appellation attached to them tend to be a little cynical about that kind of stuff. And uh, that's a shame because it it is not necessarily the case that, that romance and geekdom can't mix. Yeah, but uh, there's there's always been uh, romance in all of our sci-fi and fantasy goodness, especially the fantasy, I, I find. Um, and, uh, look, the best comic books have always had some sort of will-they-won't-they they at the center of them, at least, you know, the superhero comics. So there's plenty for us to draw from on this. We didn't really discuss too much exactly how we were going to do this, so I'm really interested to see how our lists are similar and different, like what we're, we ended up looking for. This is a broad swath of, of realty for us to choose from here. Yeah, we pretty much went in with top romances in geekdom, uh, and that encompasses so much. It encompasses television, it encompasses sci-fi, it encompasses fantasy, it encompasses comic books, video games. Um, but even then, how do you rate best, right? It's uh, like there's a lot of... A lot of people would tell you that Shakespeare has some great romances, but, uh, you know, when you think about it, Romeo and Juliet was about two teenagers who had a three-day infatuation and a bunch of people died. So, romance is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's it. There's a romantic element to that, but again, maybe a conversation for another time. Uh, but yeah, I, I found when I was doing this, I tried to think of things that uh, were... You know, so much of the stuff that we talk about is serialized or or plays out over a long stretch of time, and sometimes the romances in in those sorts of stories can get twisted, or or you know, there's drama involved in them that make them that makes the romance go up and down. So for me, I was trying to find something that was a bit more longer lasting, and even if it had a bad or tragic end, it was still sort of a romantic end, uh, and and that eliminated a lot of stuff from the field, especially comic book ones because rare is the superhero who settles down and uh you know gets happily married and beyond that rare is the marriage interesting after it happens so you know it's there's the, I, I i it was easier for me to make a list than i thought but it may not be the list that uh everyone would share yeah, like i said romance in the eye of the beholder i sort of took it from a different direction i tried to find romances that like that require a geeky element to it. And as a consequence, I've ended up with a lot of sci-fi, not a hundred percent, but a lot, but things that like what, you know, things that are uniquely geeky things that are, whether they're technological or whether they're sociological, uh, things that make romance interesting and not all of these couples work out. Uh, 
Wow. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, we'll talk about it more as we get into the lists, but it's not looking good. So we should get started and take a look at uh, a what will one day be used by our therapists against us to examine how we perceive love. Uh, Graham, would you want to get started with your number five? Sure. I feel like this one may be the most controversial one on my list. So let's get it out of the way so you can start yelling at me. My number five is Stamets and Kolber from Star Trek Discovery. Oh, I, I wouldn't yell at you. I'm not I'm not up to date with my Discovery, so minor spoilers for that. But, uh, I mean, hey, I mean, well, tell me about this romance and why you think I'd yell at you about it. <laughs> okay, so these are two characters from Star Trek Discovery. Uh, engineer Stamets, uh, who is one of the main characters introduced on the show at the beginning. He is cranky and grumpy and, and is very bad socially and is, is off-putting from the second he arrives on the scene. And so it's a bit of a surprise when you find out that not only is he in a stable, steady relationship, they're already married in the, the first season. And that's with uh, Dr. Kolber, who works in the uh, in sick bay and they have a relationship and he tries Colber is a good counterweight to Stamets. He's caring and loving and open and helpful. And he balances out all of the, the negative energy from Stamets. And then he is killed at the end of season one and as resurrected in season two and goes through some trauma there. But ultimately their relationship has well, not even their relationship, but the characters themselves have evolved, and the relationship has been an interesting part of that evolution, especially in seasons three and four when they introduce some more LGBT characters, and they kind of end up as like uh, uh, they're the dads. father figures. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to find a, a better way to put that, but yeah, they're the dads. They're, of the they're their cool gay dads. That's okay. You can say that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, they take care of them. They sort of shepherd them through the difficult times that they have and their their revelations about who they are. And they they are are a stable force on the ship, whereas the rest of the ship is constantly in trauma and relationships are ending and beginning. And, and they, look, there's a lot of problems with the show and even problems with these characters. But their relationship is one of the strong points of the show, I think. And and they are something aspirational. They're very, they, they bicker and fight sometimes, but they always are supportive and there's clearly love there. And, uh, you know, at one point Stamets is willing to, to risk the whole ship so that he doesn't lose Dr. Kolber again. And it's, it's a powerful thing. And I, I, I have enjoyed that aspect of the show every time I watch it. And, uh, you know, they, they, for me, there's not a lot else going on in the show that's that's keeping me around, but they are are something that's helping. Yeah, I do think that's something that gets kind of washed away, like baby with the bathwater. I mean, the we've talked before on this show. We're not huge Discovery people. I've moved on from it. I'm not watching the new season. I've had enough. Uh, but the show has a lot of strong points, and one of them is its characters and relationships. If anything, my complaint around that is that they spend too much time focused on one character and not all the other great characters. I would like to see more of Culber and Stamets, frankly. Um, and I mean that specifically as Culber and Stamets. Like, Stamets gets a lot of camera attention. He's on a lot. But I thought he was a lot better when Culber was with him. The... The opposites attract dynamic. I mean, it's it's a stereotype, and it's kind of a lazy writing trope, but it's a real thing that happens in real life. 
And the way the two of those actors emote that, I think, is really successful. Both of those characters are much more on when they're separate, I think. Stamets is a lot more annoying, and Culber is a lot more of a pain in the butt, like a grumpy sort of McCoy doctor. But when they're together, both of those get muted as they're kind of like comforting each other and supporting each other and filling in for each other's weaknesses and stuff. Like the way a real couple would, I really buy that relationship. Um, I think losing Culber early on and then having to resurrect him was awkward and a sign that things are not as cohesive as they should be like in the screenwriter's room. But it was a great idea to bring him back, I mean, for a lot of reasons, but especially because of this relationship. Yeah, uh, one of the things with Culber, and a part of the reason maybe they, they killed him off, is it they didn't really know what to do with him. As with so many things in Discovery and so many of the characters... The, the characters we're following aren't the senior officers on the ship necessarily, like like they have been on every other Star Trek show. Um, the, the star of the show, at least until the, this recent season, was the second officer or third officer or even lower. Uh, and then Colbert himself wasn't the chief medical officer. He was just like a doctor on the ship. And when they... You know, it's sort of weird to have a ship and with the Star Trek hierarchy that we are aware of, the chief medical officer, Dr. McCoy, Dr. Crusher, whoever, is the one that is always involved in the decisions and the bridge crew stuff. But in this show, for some reason, it's Culber, and we barely ever see the chief medical officer. And in the last season, he was doing so much sort of chatting with people and helping them through problems that he was effectively more like a Counselor Troy type character. And so they've they've made that change official in this season. He is a doctor, but also a counselor. And there's been a whole thing with David Cronenberg's character with him, like coming to terms with that. But it's it's a good change for him and it makes him a more central figure and has him available to do more and it also allows since it allows him to be on the show more it allows that relationship to be on the show more so it's been a good change and uh yeah i hope we see more of it I, uh, yeah I, I i have no idea why you thought i would be upset i i back that 100% okay well what's your number 5 maybe i'll hate it and we'll just balance it out Oh, you'll absolutely hate it. Um, my number five is such a ridiculous, stupid, deep cut. And I wrote it down enthusiastically. And then while I was researching it, I realized it wasn't as good as I remember it. But I, <laughs> but I want to talk about it. And it's going to take a little bit of time because there's a lot to explain because it's a deep cut. But my number five romance in geekdom is the Andromeda Ascendant and the Balance of Judgment. A love story between two warships from Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda. Oh my god. <laughs> I can't believe this. I love this concept from a purely sci-fi point of view. It is number five on my list because it is not nearly as good as I remembered it being. <laughs> and even then, I don't have great memories of Andromeda. What the heck is Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda, 99% of our audience is saying? Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda, marketed as often as possible as Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda to try to just soak up every dollop of legitimacy it can get, was a terrible, mostly Canadian space opera television series based on stuff that Gene Roddenberry threw out, basically. Uh, it was executively produced by Majel Barrett, by his widow from 2000 to 2005. It is a sort of action-y Star Trek clone 
uh, starring the unfortunately disgraced Kevin Sorbo, which just makes it worse. Uh, basically, you have the concept of this is you have a federation, and this one is called the Systems Commonwealth, and Kevin Sorbo is like their Captain Kirk, and his ship gets caught in a black hole or something, and so 300 years pass because of the time dilation, and he emerges to find out that their federation has collapsed, and he's going to try to rebuild it from the ground up, because he's like a, you know, a man out of the past who was back when people were all federation-y instead of like pirates and renegades like they are today. My takeaway from this show is that Almost every episode, one element went really well. Like, you'd have one episode that had really good writing, and then maybe another episode that would have really good acting, but never the same episode. <laughs> it, it, it was a shame. There just wasn't a lot to it. Look, this is a gig top five position I don't think, Graham, you're going to argue with. We don't recommend wasting your time on this show. No, there's a good reason why it's being almost entirely forgotten. Yeah. However... One of the concepts they went with was that the starships in this show were embodied by artificial intelligences and were essentially like another species. Like the way the Enterprise had some humans and a Betazoid and a Klingon on, like this one was like, well, the warships were members of the Fe well, the system's commonwealth or whatever. Um, the Andromeda, the titular ship, is played by you know in a hologram or an android form by Lexadoig, uh local local girl um she uh, she's most recently been seen she's Talia al Ghul in Arrow her mm. uh, she, she plays the like living sort of projected incarnation of this ship and there was an arc not even an arc but like a recurring guest star where there was another ship that like, this one actually went through the 300 years and saw the collapse of civilization and basically went insane. It became a crazy warship, and they have to stop it, and it's a whole thing, and, you know, ethics. Like, you can see where this writing is going a mile away. But while they're at it, the Andromeda and this ship, the balance of judgment, f sort of fall in love. And what works here is that the, the avatar of the balance of judgment is played by Michael Shanks, I'm another Canadian, he's best known as Dr. Daniel Jackson from Stargate SG-1, and he and Lexa Doig have electric chemistry, which really, really stands out, especially on this show, because no one else on this show had any chemistry with anything. The actors actually met on set and ended up getting married and are still together to this day. Uh, it really stands out. I loved this concept because the sci-fi conceit of the living ship is super cool. And there's like there's a whole thing, like, they don't want to be tools of the Federation. They want to be active members of the Federation, have rights and stuff. That all comes out. And the relationship between the two of them is a really cool idea. Uh, in rewatching, it's mostly one-sided. It's mostly on Michael Shanks' side. and it's It's played up in a way... I think that was probably that seemed more appropriate in the year 2000. Nowadays is a little stalkery. Uh, but the idea of these two artificial intelligences getting to know each other and developing a relationship, despite these major philosophical differences, despite being giant floating weapon platforms, I just love that concept. So for a, in terms of a geeky romance, not the most romantic romance, but what a neat idea. 
Yeah, yeah, it's a cool concept and and definitely could be explored in a better venue than than uh, straight to syndication TV. But uh, yeah, cool concept. Yeah, and that's pretty much all there is to say about it. Like I said, I remembered it being better than it was. Um, but if nothing else, you can YouTube a couple of scenes between Michael Shanks and Lexa Doig, and it's um, it helps that they're both incredibly beautiful people. Um, <laughs> And also fairly beautifully modeled CG space warships. So that's cool, too. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's at the bottom of my list because cool concept, but doesn't quite uh, to carry. Okay. Uh, this one, I have a feeling might be on both of our lists. I'm going with uh, Wash and Zoe from Firefly. Not on my list. Okay. Well, let's start with Firefly, another sci-fi series that, although I was going to say didn't last that long, but Andromeda outlived it significantly. I think Andromeda had like five seasons or something. Yep. Or That's just cruel. Firefly was a much-loved, short-lived show. It lasted, what, 18 episodes, and uh, not even all of those aired. Uh, it's, it's, it's a small sample size, but man... Once, once I think our generation got hooked on it, we were hooked hardcore. We played the board games. We read the comic books. It is a great show. It's a sci-fi Western with a crew of people fighting to save. Well, not even fighting to save anything. They're, they're mercenaries. They're living on the edge. They've already lost. It's, this is after a civil war and there's a, an evil empire that controls the galaxy. And these guys don't even want to try and stop the evil empire. They just want to make a living on the fringes of this evil empire. And within that crew, there's, there's our, our plucky captain and a spacefaring prostitute who is part of their ship and uh, an action guy. And then we've got the captain's right-hand man, to coin a phrase, but it's uh, it's Zoe, who is super competent, super capable, the perfect Joss Whedon woman. And we've also got the pilot of the ship, uh, Wash, who is a bit of a like kooky guy who just flies the ship, plays with uh, with toys, and jokes around here and there. But he is the opposite of a man of action. So it those two are the married couple. They're the the stable center on the ship. But all all these other characters and romances are floating around. But those two are together, and it's uh not that the sort of relationship you normally I I find you normally see on these sorts of shows where uh it's either a super competent man and a down to earth, more, you know, timid woman or two super competent people who are excellent warriors and combatants. This flips it on the head where the woman is the most competent person on the ship, the, has the clearest head, is always making the right decisions. And Wash is kind of a coward, kind of a jokester and is not an action guy at all. And yet they make this great pairing and there's never any doubt that they're they're going to be together. Like there's nothing ever comes between them that they can't sort out. They they don't really fight. There's never even like really a temptation. There's a point where because she the, Zoe has such a strong bond with the captain with Captain Malcolm Reynolds that at first you uh, normal TV tropes would make you think that there's sort of a love triangle there or something like that. There's a part where Mal and Wash get kidnapped and the bad guy is like. 
we'll sell them back to you if you get this money. They get the money, and Zoe's like, we've got the money for our people back. And he's like, well, I've changed my mind. You've only have enough for one of them. Which one do you choose? And she doesn't even let him finish the sentence before she picks Wash. And it's such a great moment to be like, no matter what, they are the couple. And, like, the captain, we will figure it out later. She's got to have her husband back. And, and, like, that is what she needs more than anything. And it's... It was such a nice thing to watch amidst all the other chaos of the show. The delightful chaos, but it was great. And uh, I, I will always have a, a soft spot for that that show and that couple. Yeah, I don't think... Well, actually, that's not true. I do know one person who didn't like Firefly. Um, and it, it it's affected our friendship, for sure. <laughs> but most people love Firefly. And yeah, they are... Wash and Zoe are an adorable couple. Um, I would think the the only fault in it, I think, is essentially just a symptom of the fact that we had so little time with them. Uh, we get enough scenes of them together to sort of see how the relationship works, so we understand how the two characters get together. But there's not enough time for them to really celebrate it. And that's not the fault of the couple, it's not the fault of the writers, it's the fault of Fox, basically, who canceled the show after what they produced 13 episodes and aired 8 Something like that. I think it's more than that, but yeah, it's there's not it's not a lot to go on. And then they got a movie, and it's continued on in comic books. But yeah, yeah, and it's now not I mean, enough time. Firefly has been out for long enough that we can spoil this, right? So let yeah, the Wash dies in the movie, and he dies yeah. in a in a Joss Whedon-y fashion where it's that sometimes death just happens. It doesn't have to mean anything. It's just you know sometimes people die, and that's. That's an important lesson for people to learn, but uh, and Zoe has to go on without him. So, frankly, I'm not interested in them furthering you know, any more Firefly <laughs> stories after that because the, the that crew is my favorite people. And I don't want it to go anywhere, but but yeah, it's it's just so hard to predict what they would have done with it because it's such a stable romance and because it's such a a non-event in the show, it also sort of becomes less interesting. And, and in a way, that's really cynical. Uh, you know, it's a television show. There has to be drama. But it's it, it, it just, it, be, it became, I think, a little bit of a crutch to both those characters that it, it becomes very hard to have non-action drama when there is a stable, healthy relationship, right? It's not an interesting show. And so it, I don't think of it when I think of memorable romances because it's kind of monotone. That's fair. I, I I don't I don't agree, but I understand that perspective. I, I do think there's enough drama there, and especially all the other characters are single or have these like romantic will they won't they things going on. That having the two of them be married and and be and not have to deal with that stuff is a nice change from the will they won't they of Mal and uh, Marina Baccarin and uh, the the stuff with uh, Simon Tam and uh, Jewel State. Man, I'm mixing up the actors and the characters. But yeah, there I think there's enough other stuff going on that you don't need to add that to these two characters. And, and in fact, I think it helps balance it out where it's not just constant romantic drama around everyone. But anyway, I think it was a, it's it's a great show. It has suffered a bit because of uh, Joss Whedon's fall from grace and some of the politics of it haven't necessarily aged that well, especially in relation to some of the Joss Whedon stuff. 
But, uh, yeah, I, I still try to enjoy the show based on my fond memories of it and, and the, the, just the nostalgia of it, I guess. Yeah, I do think it's possible to enjoy art in a vacuum from its artist. And, like, that's perfectly acceptable in this case, I think, because fun show. Okay, what's your number four? My number four, I'm going to dip into video games sort of just this once, uh, but because I had to. Uh, and when you're going for grand storytelling, the kind of thing that, you know, romances are going to show up, you have to go to the granddaddy of all that. That's the Final Fantasy franchise. And there are a lot to choose from. Uh, the ones I went, I decided to go with Tidus and Yuna from Final Fantasy X. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll go over it, but mostly it's because this is the one that really, to this day, still tugs on my heartstrings a bit. Uh, Tidus, uh, performed by James Arnold Taylor, who's probably the most famous for being the voice of Obi-Wan Kenobi, uh, basically for whenever Ewan McGregor isn't around, like for all the animated stuff and all the, like the sh the cartoons and the games and promotions and things. Uh, and Yuna, who's played by Hedy Burris, who, uh, she was in that movie Foxfire from the 90s with Angelina Jolie. Uh, and since then, she seems to sort of be showing up. Like she has like miscellaneous roles on ER and Boston Common and stuff. The world of that Final Fantasy X is in is this super depressing place where the world is basically constantly being marauded by this giant monster that the people call Sin. Uh, and supposedly because it's punishment for mankind's vanity. And there's this cycle where these summoners travel the world and summon and like go perform religious rituals and gather up all these magical beasts called eons that summons final fantasy players recognize all throughout the years and the goal is at the end to get the final eon and defeat sin which brings about the calm where there's 10 years where this thing isn't wandering around blowing up villages and cities and stuff um Yuna is a young summoner who's just starting off on this course, and she is joined by Tidus, who's an outsider from this world. It's Final Fantasy. It's an in-depth story. Don't make me go over the whole thing, because there's plenty to go over at, at the end, but he's from outside and is learning all of this, and we're the audience's eyes. And what really sort of sets this apart is that Tidus is like the only person on this planet who is kind of like happy and cheerful. And he and Yuna start to develop a relationship because she's always like quietly motivating everyone. And like, he was always trying to like, go on this quest and going to try to save the world for at least a little bit from this horrible situation. And then they develop this relationship. And then there's just a series of twists, some of which are romantic, some of which are Final Fantasy bullshit. I can admit that. The twist is that this whole time Tidus has been super cheerful and egging everyone on and spends all this time talking about what they're going to do when they finish their quest. And he finds out pretty late in the story that, no, no, at the end of this, the summoner dies at the end of this ritual. They sacrifice their life to, to stop Sin for 10 years. So Yuna's doomed. So all the happiness and stuff that she's been projecting and all the optimism and all that has totally been practiced. And she finally cracks uh, when Titus finds this out. And they have this incredible heart-to-heart. -heart. It helps that this is one of the first Final Fantasies that's voiced. Um, and the actors do a fantastic job with it. But uh, it's basically, you get that tragic, like, the romance is doomed. But it's a heroic video game, so of course you find out a way around that. Uh, but basically the solution to that is Tidus isn't going to make it either at the end. And at the end of the game, you, you, know, you, you win and resolve everything, but Tidus ceases to exist 
because he's really the dream of a dream of god people it's it's final fantasy it's really (laughs) complicated but you end up with this like incredibly tragic romance and then they flip it at the last moment and they do all the traditional like heartstring tugging and in a way i want to say like because that's those tropes is that it's not fair in a way like it's almost lazy but it's performed so well and you just you get so invested in the characters it's so successful th- that it sticks with me and like this was 2001 so i'm a like i'm a teenager i i haven't even hit my early 20s yet but like i almost cried at the end of this game i couldn't stand the fact that they didn't end up together and because it's video games of course they end up making a sequel where you can do a whole thing and they do finally end up back together again after years later and that kind of takes away the thing but the point being that in the grand old style of romantic tragedies this one does it so well and it's presented with that final fantasy sort of charm and it's just a wonderful piano piece that, that sums up the whole thing like both characters have themes but the main theme song of this game to Zanarkand is just a gorgeous piece of music that underscores their whole relationship it's wonderful and I don't think that Graham has ever even seen this game. I don't so, think so. <laughs> yeah, so I'm not sure how much we can go into it. Actually, just... it's my number one. I should have interrupted you earlier. Ah, there you go. <laughs> Surprise. Uh, no, I have no, I, I have no idea. Well, I, 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 there's not much I can say about the game or this thing. It all sounds very good based on what you said. But you said it's your. I think you said it's your only video game entry, right? Mostly, kind of. Mostly, yeah, kind of, because it's complicated on my list. So, <laughs> okay, let's, uh, okay, let's move on. Okay, uh, my number three is uh, Worf and Jadzia Dax from Deep Space Nine. I didn't put them on my list. I thought about it. Okay, um, at least you thought about it. Yeah. Well, here, lay it out. Okay, so this is Star Trek Deep Space Nine. It is. Uh, the, wow, I can't believe I got two Star Trek things on here, but that's the kind of show it is this week. Uh, Deep Space Nine was a series set in a corner of the galaxy, kind of like, uh, the, you know, the, the middle of nowhere. Like there was nothing going on there. It was a, a crap job for most of the people who were out there. They were trying to help a planet get back on its feet after a decades long occupation by, uh, the, some bad guys. And then next thing you know, a wormhole, a stable wormhole opens up and it becomes this, this essential travel hub that's basically the premise of the show at the beginning uh eventually there's a big war with aliens on the other side and in season four in a you could call it a an attempt to juice ratings if you're cynical but uh, also just a way to add an interesting new character into the show they bring Worf from star trek the next generation to be a major player on the cast you can tell they don't really know what to do with him at first and he was a late addition because other than his the first episode with him he kind of doesn't have a lot to do in that first season but by season five uh apparently the actors who play Worf and and Jedzia had sort of talked to the writers about introducing this romance between their characters and for the next two seasons they slowly build this up and the two end up getting married and uh, having this great relationship. And I, I, I when I was re- researching this, it blew my mind that it was only over the course of two seasons that we saw this relationship. 
you know, I, they'd interacted in season four, but the fact that it only really gets going early in season five and then due to tragic circumstances ends at the end of season six, I just have such a hard time wrapping my mind around it because to me, it feels like such an integral part of the show. They're again, sort of an opposites attract thing. Worf is the stoic warrior poet. He sings and whatever, but he's very honorable, does things by the book and, and doesn't mess around. Whereas Jadzia is a centuries old symbiote woman who's, who's lived all these lives and is very competent, but is a little more relaxed and lets her hair down and dances and parties and has all these sorts of fun times. And they're very, you don't, you wouldn't think that they would get along and Yet they mix together so well, and there are episodes where Worf is a real jerk, and it's hard to like him. At, uh, thinking specifically of the episode where they go to Ryza, you know the one I'm talking about, mm-hmm. the weather and, control. Yeah, and Worf is all like Jedi is having a great time, and Worf is a jerk. He just thinks it's frivolous. He doesn't like what's going on, and so he works with this guy who agrees with him and sabotages the good time that everyone's having on this pleasure planet, and it's. A very hard episode to watch if you want to like Worf. But they get through that. They they He realizes he made mistakes. She lets him loosen up. And, and the bond between them is so strong. Uh, they, I think of the episode um, where they have to go on this secret mission to save a spy. And uh, bad things happens. And Jadzia is slowly dying. And she's like, look, for the sake of the mission, I'm slowing you down. We have to get this guy. You need to go out there and save him and leave me and you know i'm sure i'll be fine she puts on this brave face and Worf, reluctantly but he does agree he goes off on his own into the woods to try and find this guy part way through he he realizes he can't do it he cannot leave his wife behind to to die alone in a jungle and he turns around and comes back and rescues her and gets her back and she's fine and the the spy they find out later is killed. He's, he can't be rescued. Worf has totally screwed up this mission and the consequences of it are, mean that he can, it's almost certain that he's not going to be able to be a captain because this screw up was so bad. And yet he has no regrets and he would do it again. And that is just like such a powerful scene. And, uh, man, uh, I, when I rewatched the series a couple of years ago, that episode really stood out to me in a way that I don't think it had before for how profound that statement is. And the, you know, it doesn't make any sense. There's no way in real life those two would be paired together on a mission like that. It just, of course, something it would, if there's any hint of danger, they're going to want to protect each other. So it doesn't make any sense. And yet it's still a very powerful episode. And, and the sacrifice Worf makes to save Jadzia is so great. I mean, Star Trek has established a precedent for sending people on away missions who really shouldn't be going, you know, like bridge officers from a ship to go hike <laughs> through a jungle for a while. Like that's, like, that's a consistent thread in that universe. That's true. So yeah. I, by that. Uh, no, I agree with everything you've said. I love the couple. I love the characters. And I love the show. The reason it didn't make my list is because... I find that the romance is sort of, it's almost like it's, it happens so quickly that it's inevitable and I miss some setup. Hmm. Like we, like we see the episode when she, she meets Worf and she's immediately attracted to him because he fights other Klingons well. 
and then they have a character arc, and then we get to the episode with uh, with Quark, the, the House of Quark episode. And then, I mean, and in, uh, acceptably, in Klingon fashion, she ends up just, like, having to yell at him and fight him before he realizes that she's into him. And then after that, they're in this perfect relationship forever. Um, I, I, I just felt like the courtship was missing and that it's kind of bumpy. Uh, the I don't know how believable it is the speed at which they go from people who just met to people who are going to devote their entire lives to each other. And that's maybe a little unfair. I mean, it's serialized television and the show has a lot of other things to cover. Maybe it's not necessary. But it did feel like even on that show, it felt like one of the less organic relationships that they do. Okay, what's uh, what's a, an example of a better organically done relationship on the show? I mean, I I believe go? Cisco and Cassidy Yates. I believe how that grew a lot more naturally. I like. I still don't know that Kira and Odo ever would have worked out, but I believe the slow build to that. Like, there's. I mean, there are a lot of relationships in that show. Arguably, Chief O'Brien and Julian Bashir. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I well, honestly, honestly, I think that one may be the most believable. I think that one is such a <laughs> slow build, and and once they are bonded, it's like you get why they're friends, but they never make it explicitly romantic, so it couldn't be on on the list for me. But I think I guess what sells it for me is that Terry Farrell sells it as Jadzia. You can see that she's into Worf, and there's like obviously Worf. I mean, Worf's like a six and she's a ten. If she's going to put the moves on him, of course he's going to go for it. Uh, At at, at the risk of sounding reductive, I believe, like, the way she acts it, I believe that she wants to nail him. hmm. I don't know if I believe that that there's a marriage here. And again, the, the wedding episode with the two of them is hilarious. I mean, it's very much a comedy, but it's one of my favorite episodes of that show. But I don't know that I actually believe that the character of Jedzia Dex looks at Worf and goes like, yeah, I want to do this for the rest of my life. Okay. I guess for me that like thinking of that last episode, the the episode with the, the Klingon heart, the, I think it's called Change of Heart, the actual title of the episode. But I think that one sells it for me. Like the at that point, by that point, they've been together for so long and and. The relationship is built up and they've gotten married. And by then, when you see them together and and the sacrifices they're willing to make for each other, I think that helps put it over the top in a way that some of the other relationships on the show don't don't hit. And again, I think, you know, I don't necessarily think Terry Farrell is the, the best act all around actor on the show, but I think she sells this really well. And, and she this is a role that she can pull off with that character in a way that I don't think anyone else on the show quite does. I mean, Cisco and Cassidy are a close second, I would say, but I buy that she really deeply loves Worf and, and I buy it vice versa, but Worf is less to work with because he's not as emotional a character. He doesn't display his emotions as much. Anyway, why don't we move on to your number three? My number three, uh, another one that should be relatively quick because Graham will have no idea what it is. <laughs> uh, my number three top romance in geekdom is, I guess, kind of a deep cut. It's Church and Tex, or Alpha and Beta from Red versus Blue. 
specifically the series that aired from 2003 to 2012. Red versus Blue is co- it's complicated, but very quick. It's a very famous machinima series. Machinima is a art form, question mark, uh, where I, people... I feel like very famous is also very relative in this conversation. Well, I mean, <laughs> cast members on this show include, like, Elijah Wood. I mean, it, it, it for is machinima. A, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I just saying, like, there's like they came a long way from animating Halo guys. Is mm-hmm. what I'm saying. Like, it's a, it's available now on Netflix. It's available now on streaming services on Crunchyroll. It's it's a big deal, even if it's sort of a weird thing. Certainly, at its inception, when it was still machinima, it is that that word refers to the process essentially of using video games and like re- using the the assets, the characters, and the art in there, and like using your video game controller to move the players around and recording a story over it. Um, so the very early seasons of Red versus Blue are about the like the poor guys who basically have to play multiplayer Halo, and how they're all a bunch of like it's a military comedy. They're all a bunch of incompetent jackasses, and they don't understand really why they're fighting, and they don't really care. Um, the romance, in, however, and again, as you might expect from the you know the material we're talking about here, like this is not Shakespeare quality stuff. Uh, but it has a really cool sci-fi conceit. Uh, really early on in the comedy, uh, ch- the character of Church, Leonard Church on, on Blue Team, is killed and comes back as a ghost. And there's a whole comedy thing of like, you know, where he's constantly, I can't believe I died from this war. And like, why would I be haunting this place? Like, I can't get out of the army even in death. It's, it's hilarious. Um, but Red versus Blue picked up a lot of popularity and got a lot of support from, from at the time, Bungie, now Microsoft, who make the Halo video game, which is genuinely a big deal. And the show got very popular and got a ton of money coming in. And they started sort of making a real show instead of just like jokes over Halo cartoons. And they started to write a real plot about it. And something that came up early in the series is that Church is obsessed with this character, Tex, who is, well, just Church is a lazy, incompetent jackass in a war. Tex is the badass bounty hunter. She's sort of the Boba Fett of the Red versus Blue universe. And she's, you can kill a hundred men with her pinky finger and is constantly intimidating everybody on both sides of the battlefield. And the gag is that somehow she's his ex-girlfriend, even though she can't stand him and everyone like no one can figure out why that would be so a ton of revelations and retcons happen to turn this into a real story and one of the initial big things is that there's no such thing as ghosts what they've been doing is they've we've spent a long time in this arc hunting down artificial intelligences and they come to the conclusion that Church is actually an AI. Like his, when he appears as a ghost, he's actually a hologram that's just been programmed not to know he's a hologram. When he died, it's because he was possessing, like, essentially, like a robot suit for his body, and he's been living as an artificial intelligence. And it turns into this is this whole sci-fi military conspiracy about this guy who's training super soldiers to and like pairing them with artificial intelligences to make them super killers. And Tex is probably one of those, and they try to cycle it through until they realize that Tex is also an AI. 
what the hell's going on there? It's, this could go, geez, this could go on forever. I'm going to try to skip to the end. In the Halo universe, we we know from like, the actual games, they don't just program AIs. You don't just like buy one at a store. Artificial intelligences come from sort of like uploading a human brain, kind of. It's like mapping a mind. And it's difficult and it's hard to do. And a big thing in this is where are they getting all these AI? How are they doing it? And we find out that the bad guy, the antagonist, has essentially found that basically you psychologically torture an AI, a map of someone's brain, and it develops kind of a schizophrenic multiple personality disorder. And then you harvest those separate personalities and you can make more AIs, but they're all sort of fragmented and messed up. And that's also ethically questionable. So they finally go to stop him. And what we find out is that the antagonist, this you know evil mad scientist director, has based the AI on himself. And he had someone he was in a relationship with, a woman who was lost in the war in the main like Halo thing. And they get an actress to actually portray this person in full Halo gear and stuff. And he's been trying to recreate her, essentially, by scanning his own mind into a computer and torturing himself until the memories of her as she's portrayed in his head come out and then kind of trying to rebuild her into a real person. But of course, that doesn't work. That's insane. And after, like, ten seasons of this show of Church and Tex, like, circling around each other and hating each other and then finding out that neither of them are real and they can never work out their problems, they can never be together, because in the real Doc Director Church's mind, they're not together. No matter how often, no matter how he's trying to perform this mad scientist experiment... And trying to, like, I'm not even sure if I've explained it well enough to get full comprehension of. They get the bonus of being able to explain it over 10 years. I'm trying to do it in 10 minutes. But the heartbreak of that romance really hit me hard. And the way the characters sort of deal with that, of the of the the trauma of it and the way that the relationship sort of survives, even when it's been mutated into this sci-fi mutated ridiculous form I thought was really touching and again a really unique geeky kind of romance that you couldn't just get from anywhere else that is a hell of a branch from the the main halo narrative they they really took it in their own direction didn't they well, I mean, rampancy happens to AIs in Halo. Like, after Red vs. Blue did this, that sort of, like, schizophrenic breakdown thing happens to Cortana at the end of Halo 4. Like, it's a hmm. it's a common theme. Uh, they just took it and added this cool romance arc to it. And they, like, they, they put, frankly, a lot more personality they put into their characters than Microsoft puts into their Halo characters. So, to be fair, I haven't played Infinite yet. And... They also have the ability to, like, it's it's a straightforward narrative. They don't have to, you know, break the narrative up with, like, 25 minutes of shooting at aliens. That helps, too. Although there is a fair <laughs> amount of shooting, but it's that kind of show. Anyway, again, uh, like, that one is hard to wrap your head around with, and I know that Graham hasn't had a chance to get involved with it, so I don't know if there's much more to say, which is why I tried to lay it out like that. Um, the company behind Red vs. Blue, Rooster Teeth, has tripped over some controversy in recent years, but they're doing 
okay. <laughs> no one's gonna, <laughs> they, they've had to dismiss some staff members, but they're still going. Um, I've, I have tuned out, but some of that stuff is pretty great. And again, first 10 seasons are just on Netflix now. So if you're looking for something really different and unique, if you're willing to put up with a slow start, Red vs. Blue is... It's it's a fun comedy and a fun story, but also has this really cool love story in it that might be worth your time. And we should move on because we are running long. <laughs> All right. Well, this one may also be a quick one because I would be shocked if it's on your list. I'm going with Amy and Rory Pond from Doctor Who. Still haven't seen it. <laughs> well, I I have watched I watched the first I don't know. 10 seasons of, of New Who, as it's called, with the relaunch with Christopher Eccleston. I, just I watched as a and... side note, I hate that <laughs> so much. It's the first time I've heard it, and I just, my, it set my teeth on edge. <laughs> well, I, I, it's it's a convenient way to distinguish the, the different eras of Doctor Who, because yeah. the show effectively ended at the end of the 80s, the early 90s, and then relaunched and wasn't even clear at the beginning if it was new continuity or not in the uh, early 2000s. And then they eventually bridged them and made it all a whole. Um, but I, I watched for, for a while there. I was I was really into it. And then the Peter Capaldi years kind of ended up turning me off and I, I fell off the fandom. But Doctor Who is about a alien who can travel through time in his TARDIS and he is really... A uh, big fan of Earth, and he keeps going to Earth and, and making friends there and traveling through time and going on adventures with, with these humans. In this season, when Stephen Moffat took over the series as the showrunner, he he brought in a new doctor, and that was Matt Smith. And I, I believe he was the 11th doctor, and he is... Uh, I, Kind of controversial, you know. You either love him or hate him. I really liked him. He's he's younger. He's uh, funny, and he's got this weird energy to him, as all doctors do. But he his was uniquely weird in a way that connected with uh, uh, geeky people in the mid two thousand, like twenty tens, and. His companions on the show, the the humans who travel with the Doctor, are always called companions. He first meets Amy Pond, and she is she's obsessed with him. He met her as a little girl, and then disappeared, and told her he would be coming back. And she had spent her her the next ten years waiting for him to return. And for the Doctor, it was like I don't know, ten minutes or an hour, and he returns. Uh, but it's it's been such a long, traumatizing time for her, where she's just spent all this time thinking she was maybe crazy since meeting this guy. And they reconnect, and they go on these adventures, and she's sort of attracted to him, and there's a will-they-won't-they they there. And then eventually it's revealed that she, she actually has a boyfriend, not even a boyfriend, a fiancé, and that's Rory. And eventually he joins up, and they go on these adventures, and at some point sh- she has to choose between the two of them, and the Doctor is sort of at least with humans for the most part vaguely asexual like he's he doesn't really show a lot of interest in in women so it's kinds of ends up being a, an easy choice she goes with Rory she goes with her husband and then that right. romance is an important part of the rest of that run and it gets into weird sci-fi stuff too like they end up in the past and Amy is injured and she goes into this box and Rory is there in a uh, his mind or his soul or whatever is in this robot form and this box 
can just sit there and it's virtually indestructible, but people are going to want it. People are going to want to do stuff to it. And so uh, the doctor says that they're going to jump ahead 2000 years in the future and they'll open it up and Amy will be fine. And Rory says, well, what's going to happen to her in the meantime? And he's like, she'll be fine. You know, she's just going to sit here. And he's like, I'm going to stay and protect it. And the doctor's like, that's crazy. You can't just sit here for 2000 years. And he's like, watch me. And he does. And he just sits there outside protecting this, this woman who is, is, you know, wasn't even sure she was going to get together with him for the longest time. And yet he is willing to just sit there and, and spend 2000 years defending her. They can't speak. They can't even see each other. And it's a, a powerful moment. But I think the thing that puts it over the top for me, the moment in the show that that really sold that relationship is kind of the last moment they have together. And so I'm getting into spoiler, like hardcore spoiler territory here, but they go on this one big adventure in Manhattan and they're going back and forth through time and it becomes this deadly thing, this place in in time. They can't go back there anymore for fear of rupturing the space-time continuum. There are villains, the uh, recurring villain in this run of the series is the these angels and they're, they're gargoyles. And if you're looking right at them, they can't move. But if you blink, they move super fast. And if they touch you, you're dead, but it's not your normal dead. They, they take your lifespan. They send you the, whatever your natural amount of time that you're going to live. They send you back in time so that you're dead. By the time you get to that, that present again, it's kind of weird. It's weird sci-fi stuff. But just at the end of this episode, when they thought they've fixed everything, one of the angels touches Rory and he goes back in time and is is dead in the present. And Amy has to make this decision, like, is he effectively dead? Am I going to just leave now and continue on my adventures with the doctor? But of course she can't do that. The doctor is begging her not to do it, but she sacrifices herself so that she is sent back in time as well. And they're trapped. They can never see the doctor again. They can't do anything. They they are have given themselves a death sentence, but they go back in time to, I think it's the thirties and this live out the rest of their life. The next, maybe it's the fifties. Anyway, they live however long in New York, just as normal people after this huge adventure they've had. But, but Amy's sacrifice to go and do that with Rory was such a great moment. And, uh, it's, it's, I almost cried with it. I'm not a big crier when it comes to fiction, but that that was really close to doing it. Now that since I've become a father, any kid stuff, it always brings me to the verge of tears really easily. But this was before any of that stuff. And still, I was almost crying at this scene. (laughs) Very powerful stuff. Love it. So what I'm getting at is that the kind of romances we both prefer are the ones that take like 20 minutes to explain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, apparently. Well, look, we're talking about sci-fi video game stuff. They're never a simple boy meets girl story. Yeah. And I mean that there's something to that. Like kind of like what I was saying with Jadzia and Worf is I missed the the setup, like the the, the courtship phase of it. They just kind of skipped to the being together phase. I mean, that's that's a hell of a complex setup with some really good examples. Of the relationship getting tested and or not getting tested since they go right through it. That's the kind of thing that I was saying was kind of missing from Firefly. Like, it seems like as we're getting to the top of our list, we can see that what we're looking for is sort of a long-term investment with some real examples of the kind of devotion that two people can have towards one another. Yeah, and man, I I have really cleaned up the complications involved in their relationship. that That was the short version. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, Doctor Who's been around for a while. 
Um, I mean, that's I think that's a, a pretty good sign of the of, of the good versus the bad. A good way to delineate the differences. Um, I mean, in terms of those specifics, again, I just Doctor Who is just one of my blind spots. It's not even a preference. It's just you know, I only got time for so much and mm-hmm. didn't have time for that. Um, but I hear good things. Smile, thumbs up. <laughs> okay. Well, why don't we jump ahead to your number two? Okay. This one is going to generate some letters, <laughs> because apparently our show airs in 1998, where people still write letters instead of just your Twitter raging. I thought about it, and I said no. And then I said, you know what? I'm going to do it. At number two, I'm putting Ray and Kylo. Oh, what? At number yep. two? At number two. I'm going to write a letter. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I... boy. The, oh, it's because they're a dyad in the forest, that thing we've known for so long and really needed. It was finally time we got an example of it. Yeah, right. yeah. The um, CR review of The Rise of Skywalker, <laughs> subtitled, What the Fuck is a Forest Dyad? Um, no, at the... Look, I don't know how much background I'm going to get into here. Ray and Kylo Ren, uh, Daisy Ridley and Adam Driver, Star Wars sequels. I really bought the idea of these being two stupid teenagers being in like that kind of Romeo and Juliet kind of really stupid love. Okay. Um, both of these, again, I'm not going to tell you what Star Wars is. You're listening to Geek Top 5. If you haven't seen these movies, I just, I can't imagine what you're doing on here. Maybe you're really into comic books and it's that narrow, but These two characters, one's on the good guy side, one's on the bad guy side, but both are sort of tempted to the other side because they're kind of goobers. And as a result, they both have these character traits where they're sort of exiled from what other people want them to be or think they should be, and they end up connecting with each other. Um, and we we see that start to develop in the second one in The Last Jedi, where they both kind of realize that they're more comfortable talking to each other than they are to their, you know, various, whatever, space wizard masters or secret armies or space beat heroes or whatever. And it, it, it does carry into the third one where they actually have their kiss, and I don't know about that, but especially in the second one where it's... You know, well, I think that you're going to betray your master and join me. No, no, I know you're going to betray your master and join me. No, I don't think that's what's going to... The stupid crushing of it, I actually really buy. It's silly. It's not, you know, a... a, a like, like, the relationship never would have worked. <laughs> it never would have worked out. They would have dated... Like, in a perfectly normal universe, they'd have dated for a while, and it wouldn't have quite... You know, they realized that they both had other things they wanted to do with their lives and they would have moved on. But as that high school level teenage, I have all these feelings and I don't know what to do with them, but I recognize that you know it too. I really buy the portrayal of that in those movies. Okay. Uh, I I don't know. I what I'm, I'm looking over my list and I feel like... Almost all of my picks are mature romances, relationships that are built on a stronger foundation. And so looking at that pick, I am struggling because, and I know we have different criteria, we're looking for different things, but 
Kylo Ren is is a manipulative jerk. Like like he's I don't I I I can't. He's like a stalker. He's abusive. I cannot have him anywhere near a romance list, despite their his his somewhat redemption in the last movie. Well, even before that, I mean, my counter argument to that would be that like Kylo Ren is the Star Wars universe equivalent of like a guy on MySpace who calls himself Lord Dark Shadow Talon Claw. Yeah, like that's that's my persona, and I'm dark, and I listen to Slayer, and I dress all in black, and also I paint my nails black. But he's underneath all that; he's still Ben Solo, and yeah. one of the many sins of these movies is that we don't get nearly enough Ben Solo. But what we do get is at its best when he's like when Ray's like, I know that Ben is still under there, and he's kind of going. Kind of, maybe, but I'm scared of not being who I want myself to be on on Force MySpace. <laughs> yeah, but he kills his own father and almost kills his mother. Like, he's 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 a bad guy, and, and she shouldn't be anywhere near him. And she blows up a ship full of people with lightning from her fingers. I mean, like, yeah, the, the metaphor breaks down because it's a bizarre fantasy space movie. Um, but I really like the like the teenage nonsense of it. Like, like your, to your point, is this the like a more stable romance than Zoe and Wash? Of course not. But I like the. I mean, I, I guess maybe I should zoom in on this more. Again, looking at my list about like the unique things you can do with a romance and geekdom, the 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 what do we call it? Like the force time, the like like the mutual semi mind reading. That yeah. is never explained to any satisfaction because of that dyad nonsense. But the way they do that and poke around each other is, I just found it really compelling. And again, it never would have worked as a real relationship. I can see that as a middle-aged man, but like <laughs> as the you know as the kid who's into fantasies and stuff, like the way the two of them relate to each other, like. I I like I really bought that performance. I think that's I mean certainly the most powerful romance I'd say in Star Wars hands down. Not immediately, not a high bar, but hands down. I don't know. I I'd, I'd put like Lando and his uh, robot from Solo on the higher on the list than those two, but again, I I think we're going to have to agree to disagree on that one. Yeah, right. <laughs> Okay, so my number one is Superman and Lois Lane. Not on my list, but I mean, I I understand why. Okay, so it's a relationship that has been going in some form or another since 1936, I believe, 36 or 37. It's for the vast majority of that time, for about 50 years, it was always... It was more of a a kid's comic book, so their relationship was always, she's interested in Superman, he's Clark, and he's interested in her, she has no interest in Clark, and and it's it's that that love triangle with a comic book superhero twist to it, and they could never truly get together except in imaginary stories because that would take away any of their romantic tension and Superman would have other interests and other uh, like Lana Lang and uh, Lori Lamaris but it was always Lois that was his his true one true love and he would always be interested in getting back to to her when he could 
This all sort of changed around 1986 after the Crisis on Infinite Earths when they rebooted all of the continuity. And um, by 1991, so so the, one of the things they did in that reboot is that they made they tried to make things a little more adult and a little more realistic as far as superhero comics go, and that relationship developed more. And they they didn't want to string it along unrealistically because uh, she's supposed to be this genius. Uh, investigative journalist and to have her not be able to figure out who Superman was while she's literally working side by side with him since he's another reporter, it just strained credulity. So within six years, he revealed his identity to her and they got engaged. And then another like five years after that, they actually went through with the marriage and in between Superman was dead for a year, but that's not important to the story. The fact (laughs) (laughs) that they had this relationship and that they're, I think at the beginning, in the early days, Lois wasn't written very well, Superman wasn't written very well, but one of the things that superhero comics has over a lot of other uh, pieces of fiction and, and mediums and whatnot is that the they're, they're continuing stories and there are new people coming in to write them and even the, the new people who come on board are tend to be fans from before and the people who started it were just sort of tossing off ideas and carrying on just to cash a paycheck. But the next people want to make it more grounded and have more realism and try and justify the, the changes to the characters and, and the reasons why characters act certain ways. And then the next generation build on that and build on that. So the point now where we have the, they've had to justify this relationship for so long and they've made it really work where he this is a woman he's he's a superman he can do anything he's got super strength he can see through walls he can do anything and he's he's fascinated by this woman and she is equally fascinated with him because he's uh, he's the the coolest guy in the world he can do anything but also he's very kind and generous and sweet and you see that relationship for what it is where they're, they 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 have strengths that they bring to the relationship that the other doesn't have and they build each other up and they support each other and there's they they are always going to trust each other at this point in their relationship that's not always been the case and and in the new 52 another reboot of continuity they broke it all down they de-aged everyone um marriage in comic books doesn't happen very much because it tends to age characters and make them less uh dynamic but this is a marriage that has worked in a way that few others in comic books have. They got rid of the Superman or the Spider-Man Mary Jane relationship and that has received, you know, mixed reviews, but it stuck. That's gone. The Superman uh, Lois marriage once they deleted it, at some point they realized that was a mistake and they brought it back and they even went further. They they in the interim, it wasn't like they, they decided that it wasn't like the, that relationship completely disappeared. They just were sort of off page and they had a whole other life. In fact, they had a kid and that sort of thing tends to age characters even more, but it just made their relationship that much stronger. Their, their bond was tighter and it was such a great development. They've made a whole TV show based on it. It's yeah. So they, they, they've got this TV show on that's about that relationship and about them uh, raising these kids but it is a it's it's a great dynamic and i think the building it over decades really helped solidify it in the public consciousness and built the characters into a strong pairing man it's see that's hmm like i'm thinking that yeah that probably is like one of the most stable marriages in pop culture 
Like I always expect Superman and Lois Lane to be together, and it's it's unfortunate that just in my case personally, I'm always reading a lot of like Elseworlds stuff or what if stuff, and it's like half the time super you know, an evil Superman gets together with Wonder Woman or what have you. Yeah, uh, but in general, yeah, I don't think of them not being a couple. But I think it's because of that that I also see it as like kind of uninteresting because it's such a given. Mm-hmm. I hear uh, you, and I, I would have agreed even more until I started reading more of the recent stuff, and it really clicked with me. And maybe that's what it is. It's been a long time since I read any Superman. Um, I sort of dropped out around the time they did the like the electric suit, and then like there were two of them, like the blue one and the red one. Yeah, Dark and, Times. Yeah, and uh, they haven't known what to do with Superman for a while because exactly because of what you describe is that he's he's really just like an uh, just a hero. He is the idealized guy, and I guess part of that is meaning that he has an idealized like you know, per- like perfect guy, perfect perfect wife, perfect life. Uh, so again, yeah, it's a question of criteria. I didn't think of it as a top romance because, in a way, to me, there's nothing interesting about it, but. Boy, in real life, I mean, I bet a lot of people wish they sort of had just a perfect relationship where it just worked and they were together forever. So maybe I'm doing it a disservice. All right. Well, what is your number one? Uh, my number one, I, looking at it now, I sort of, I, I tried to be clever about it. I was saying it's not really, the video, but you know, it's it's a video game. It's from Mass Effect. I just... <laughs> Uh, I my number one romance in geekdom right now is Joker and Edie across the Mass Effect franchise from 2001 to 2013. Uh, this encompasses everything I wanted on my list. It's a cool sci-fi concept, uh, but also is a really believable relationship with really believable characters that I honestly feel for at the end. Um, the characters Jeff Joker Moreau, portrayed by Seth Green. Um, Buffy, Family Guy, and Edie, the Enhanced Defense Intelligence and Artificial Intelligence portrayed by Trisha Helfer, you know, geek goddess. Um, not quite local, Canadian, Vancouver, uh, but she, she was number six on Battlestar. She was the the, the, the mom on Lucifer. And she was in StarCraft too, if you're into that kind of thing. Um, Joker is a space pilot. He pilots the ship and he's irreverent. Uh, where everyone else on this ship is like a space commando, or he's the one telling jokes and being honestly kind of a pain. He's written really poorly in the first game, and they touch it up for the second one to make him less of a pain in the ass and more genuinely entertaining. But he's the he's the Washburn character for sure. And Edie initially starts off as the artificial intelligence, as the Major Barrett, as the ship's computer, who learns to be essentially you know learns what it means to be human. And over the course of these, of Edie starts in Mass Effect 2 when she shows up, and the relationship between the two characters is one of conflict because Joker doesn't want an AI on his ship. Right? It's he's the pilot. He's like, you know, he's basically the ship as far as he's concerned, and he acts out against it in really childish ways. There's you walk in to talk to him and he sort of gives you the you know, shh, 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 like I can tell when the AI is listening and Trisha Helfer's I'm always listening and he, he shouts back I know like that kind of thing and then over the course of the game she, like they start pranking each other 
And she's doing it in a sense like it's all coincidental. She's just an AI. She's not actually messing with him as much as he's messing with her. And by the end of the game, he's sort of defending her like as uh, from other characters. And then in the third game, they go all the way and like give her an android body. And the two of them develop a relationship. And because it's Mass Effect... I'm not going to go into Mass Effect. We talk about it on the show all the time. It is a game about character and dialogue and the choices you make, both about the things you do and the things that you say and how it affects people. But these two people go to you for relationship advice and for the first like human and synthetic intelligence relationship and can it actually work? And if you encourage this relationship... They very much fall in love, and we see them doing a lot of things on the side. Like, they go shopping together, and she has a lot of, like, what does it mean to be human, and what do these behaviors mean kind of comedy. And he's having a blast just because he's with this, you know, hot robot lady. But then she turns it on him. You Like, you meet them, they're in a bar once, and she's naming off, like, random alien characters we've met throughout the trilogy. And he's explaining to her, like, he, like, what, like why they are either are or are not hot and making him really uncomfortable. <laughs> and it, it turns into this big reflection because the final... Con- like, the final climax, the final conflict in this game is how our organic... Like, how is organic life and artificial synthetic life going to learn to work together and not sort of, you know, Cylons and humans it? And in one particular, like, in one of the endings of one of the particular side stories, if you follow it through, where basically there's a synthesis between the two, and, like, one of the last things you see in the game is not your gallant hero, Commander Shepard, the savior of the galaxy, it's Joker and Edie, who have crashed on this planet and you know, are and supporting each other as a couple and looking over this, this you know, the, like, looking into the future, as it were. Uh, I mean... It's so well acted. It's so much fun to be around. And you're, you have just enough input to encourage them to get together that, like, as you play the game, you're sort of rooting for them and want to see how it goes. And it works out so beautifully in the end. Like, it's, it's, it's a shame that you have to play through 120 hours of video game to do the whole story. But if you YouTube just Joker and Edie best moments, there's a really believable relationship there. But also one between, you know, a robot lady and a smart-ass person. And, I, it, and that just checks off, as I said, all those boxes on my list. It is a cool romance that is also a geeky romance. And I'm a big fan. So that one is another one where it's a romance that is helped by the fact that it's not constantly, well, it is constantly being interrupted by action scenes and other story things, but their relationship isn't impacted by that stuff. They, they, their relationship can grow and change based on their conversations, whereas any of Shepard's relationships, there's so much more going on with them that do you think that's why those relationships don't feel as... As interesting as this one. I don't even know if interesting is the word. I mean, I think maybe what makes this one more interesting is that, like, AI and organic component to it. But it also helps that they're both fully written, fully voiced characters. Like, you as the protagonist are fully written and fully voiced. But because relationships with the protagonist have to make room for player choices, they tend to not have a ton of depth. Just because like, you can't program for that level of 
of freedom that the player has, right? Mm-hmm. The relationships tend to be kind of surface level. Like, there's a lot of believable dialogue, but events and circumstances are hard to predict. Both of these characters being non-player characters means that whatever they go through, the writers can plan ahead for it, which allows them to deal with the ups and downs. You know, like when you're 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 fighting the Geth at one point, and Edie has a lot of questions, like like what is the difference between me and this synthetic race of antagonists? It's like and we can plan out what Joker's response to that is, like how he feels about the Geth. You can't do that for the player. Right. Yeah, there's a lot more branches of dialogue you gotta be cognizant of when you're putting the, the together the player's options. You know, they still do a great job. A lot of the Shepherd romances are really good. The the Femshep and Garrus romance is great. It's a blast. Uh but by the same token, like the Ashley and male shepherd romance is this really plain, uninteresting, boring <laughs> nothing. Like, it's kind of hit and miss. I, I'm not casting shade at everyone else, but the uniqueness and the opportunity they had to explore this with these two characters. And again, backed by the point that it helps that they have, like, real actors and real writers behind them. Yeah. is just It's just phenomenal. All right, well... Yeah, we we did it. We found our our top romances, and there was no overlap. Uh, and and now we'll just have to see whose list defeats the others. Yeah, please let us know about that. Um, we uh, we love hearing from you, and I know I know I'm going to hear about Ray and Kylo at the very least. Uh, but I'm sure there are a lot of folks with a lot of strong opinions on the. On Mass Effect romances as well, and we would love to hear about it. Those of you who participate, those of you who you know, just even from the smallest comment to the longest essay that we've received, um, just wanted to say thank you for that because we love continuing the conversation. If you had other thoughts, questions, comments, concerns, criticisms, always love hearing that. Graham, how can they get that to us? Please email us at geektop5 at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, facebook.com slash geektop5. And we're on Twitter at geektop5. You can also go to our website, geektop5.com, and leave comments under every single episode. And please also go to your podcatcher of choice and rate and review us. Those ratings and reviews also helpful as as much as the feedback. Not just because we love seeing those stars, but because it helps us figure out how and where the podcast is being listened to and how to make it better. So whatever you're able to submit, if it's a rating, a review, a comment, a thought, thank you regardless. We're doing this for you, and we, we love knowing that you're as engaged as we are. While we're giving out thanks, also want to thank Oliver Wickham, the guy behind our theme song. He's a music producer. He's got stuff up on Spotify. You should go check that out. You will not regret it. And if you're looking for other things to do, I mean, that is 10 romances across video games, movies, television, and comic books. All kinds of cool stuff. And if you haven't tapped into even just one of those, I can pretty much, well, with the possible exception of Andromeda, I can promise you you're going to have a good time. At the very least, it's plenty enough to keep you busy until we get a chance to do this again. Until then, I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And this has been Geek Top 5, and we'll talk to you again next week.